With Ash Wednesday yesterday, we marked that strangest turning of the Christian year when our worship darkens just as our half of the earth begins to turn toward the sun. The church, following its ancient practice, asks us to focus on sin and mortality, just as weather and biology, not to mention the aisle displays at the local drugstore, invite us to think of flowers and bunny rabbits and all the soft seductions of spring. We started off with the cheerful admonition, remember that you are dust and to dust you will return. As if anyone who watches the news needs to be reminded about the power of death in the world. And then the readings for this coming Sunday recap the story of the fall, continue with Paul explaining how one man brought condemnation on all, and finish up with Matthew's detailing the rigors of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. I am pretty sure I would have fallen long before the 40th day, and if this is what faithfulness requires, then I am doomed. It's already a hard sell, this message, and the church's timing, it seems, is all wrong. Plus, it all goes on for more than six weeks. So we, like the congregations we serve, may be tempted to plow through this depressing liturgical season with as little attention as we can get away with and get on to the good stuff of Easter. Lilies, soaring hymns, trumpets, and the sweet, reliable triumph of grace. Well, I have considerable sympathy with everybody's desire to skip to the happy ending. And I will admit that the annual calls to fasting and penance inspire in me the same mix of dutifulness and dread that they stir up in most people. However, in my 40-some years in the church, I have observed something, that those who skip Advent never make it to the manger, but merely to the mall and its celebration of affluence. Likewise, those of us who will not enter on the journey of Lent never find their way to the empty tomb, but merely join in the lovely, but essentially pagan celebration of Earth's renewal, complete with the ancient fertility symbols of eggs and, you guessed it, bunny rabbits. For there is more at issue here than the wisdom of the church calendar or even the integrity of its feasts. At stake is the gospel itself. For the meaning of Christ's victory is so bound up with the bleak realities of sin and death as to be unintelligible without them. If we will not confront the reality and fear of death, which the cross alone contains, will not recognize all the pale substitutes for God to which we cling, will not accept the truth that we must leave behind on the path to heaven 
even our favorite souvenirs of hell, then we will have turned Easter into merely a fairy tale whose happy ending has no real bearing on us and no real power in our lives. It is another way of saying that we will have fallen into unbelief. But I haven't actually come all this way merely to tell you to suck it up and do your moral homework, or take your spiritual vitamins, or eat your spinach, or whatever metaphor you might choose for the ancient penitential practices of Lent. My purpose is not to persuade you that the disciplines and small sacrifices of the season are worthwhile. The truth is, like all the ordinances of Christian practice, they can be, but they are not automatically so. For it is possible even to give up your body to be burned, and having not charity, for it to profit you nothing. For the significance of Lent is not in what we give up, but only in what we receive. It is never what we lay down, but always what we take into our hands that finally matters. It is not the renunciation of a false trust in this life, buttressed as it is, by all our technologies against aging and our stratagems of denial, not this that is central. Neither is it laying aside the blooming, buzzing distractions to which our lives of devotion and service so often take second place. The point is never what we say no to, but whether we will say yes whether we will assent to the overwhelming and eternal yes that God calls us to embrace, the joy into which we are summoned, the living fire of God's love which kindles in us the true life that goes on forever. The Lenten call to repentance is not ultimate. It is merely the turning around that sets us in the right direction. What is ultimate is the invitation to come to our Father's house to be welcomed and fed. From the standpoint of the gospel, the only thing that matters in the end is whether we will accept that invitation and so find our way home. That is what I've come to say. And just when you thought I'd forgotten, this brings us to today's lesson. Now, we have all been through a class in the Pauline epistles, some of us a lot more recently than others. So we all know what generally is going on in the text from which this morning's passage is taken. We are in the middle of Paul's labored, sometimes nearly desperate appeals to the church he founded in Corinth, appeals to remember his message and heed his authority, and for heaven's sake to start behaving like they've heard the gospel before today. He has written once like a worried parent, by turns furious and pleading 
responding to the alarming reports he has heard of them, tales of factions and scandals, specious regulations and new gospels of advanced spiritual knowledge that disdain all constraint. Now Paul, while longing to go to them, is hesitant to bring in person more words of reproof and reproach. Instead, he follows with a second letter, spending most of it in trying to defend his own teaching and ministry among them. He offers them the record of labor and sacrifice and dedication shown by himself and his companions, reciting the afflictions they have borne for your consolation and salvation, all testimony to the constancy of the love he bears them in Christ. We have behaved with frankness and godly sincerity toward you, he insists, guided only by what you were able to understand, hoping someday to boast in your faithfulness. We are not peddlers of the word, he promises, but speak as persons sent from God and standing in his presence. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, he tells them. We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Everything being done so that grace may extend to more and increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And what is the point of this extended argument? This five chapters of convoluted testimony on his own behalf? What is the climax of Paul's long and winding construction unspooling over more than 90 verses? It is no magisterial system of doctrine no grandiose theological conclusion, but simply this. We entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. All that he has labored to do and to be, to argue and to explain, to defend and to model, has been for the sake of this heartfelt entreaty. And the grounds for it are one of the most succinct and luminous statements of Christian conviction in all of Paul's writing. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what it has all been for and why it has mattered. The unfathomable suffering of Christ and the suffering of every disciple who has labored to follow him. Here is why Jesus came, as well as why Paul and every evangelist since has come, in order that the mercy of God might become in us not only pardon, but reconciliation, not only forgiveness, but new life and holiness to God's glory and the world's remaking. Oh, Paul practically begs, do not let it go to waste. The hunger, 
the hardships, the beatings, the imprisonment, all are as nothing if only you will come. Do not receive the grace of God in vain, he pleads with them. Do not let it wither into a matter of fact and empty, empty proposition that brings neither gratitude nor gladness, that is affirmed without being fruitful because it is only an idea and not a living relationship. This year, this season, this day, come and be reconciled. Now is the acceptable today, and today is the day of salvation. The whole season of Lent exists for nothing else than this, to bring us once again to wakefulness, to remind us that the time of God's healing mercy is upon us, and we can turn today toward home. Now, I know who I am talking to, and that I am not likely calling you from riotous living like Luke's prodigal, nor from the pigsty or brothel of some Babylon. But repentance is not only a question of turning from unbelief to faith, or of laying down once and for all some recurrent gross sin that holds you captive. It may be as simple and as fundamental as reshaping the priorities that order your daily life. Perhaps I am only calling you as I am trying to call myself, from the perverse busyness, even the busyness in study and ministry, that cuts us off from the center of our work, from the life of prayer and the daily abiding in the life of God, which is our essential nourishment. For nurture takes time. Without it, the evidence of faith, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, cannot mature. It is people who spend a good deal of time together who come to look and to sound alike. After extended visits in Tennessee, it takes a few days before I can understand my husband again as he reverts to the drawl of his youth. I have a foster sister no relation at all, whose biological father was Chinese. And yet, after many years of living together, we are used to people telling us how much we look alike. This is the work of time. Likewise, if we are to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, remade in the image of God, we will have to do more than drop by for an hour on most Sundays. Lent is our annual invitation to the family reunion. It bids us to come and spend some time at home. And you will know the signs if you are overdue. Perhaps you, like me, find yourself telling the gospel story from recollection, espousing the blessings of faith like some expatriate writing a travelogue about her native land. We know the place, all right. We have even lived there. But now we are speaking 
from memory. It is not enough. Not for our hearers and not for us. You who would speak of the mercy of God, of the love of the Son, and the healing power of the Holy Spirit, come home. Stay a while. You will find your father waiting at the door, or perhaps running down the road to meet you. Now, since it seems better to actually spend time with God than to talk about it, I'm going to invite you to join me in a brief time of centering prayer. This is a very basic exercise born of years of attending silent meetings for worship with the Society of Friends to which my husband belongs. It has been my experience that this is something one must learn to do and find a way to approach. There is nothing special about the model I am offering. It happens to be what worked for me. That's all I can say. So, please, prepare yourself to enter with me into a few minutes of silent prayer. As you settle down to prayer, first let yourself be aware of all the sensory input that enters your consciousness. What you see, what you hear, what you feel. The pressure of the seat, the rub of your clothing, the warmth of the space, the rustling of people around you. Do not try to suppress these awarenesses as distractions. Just note them and respond to them as seems fitting. Sometimes I pray my gratitude for the heating system that keeps the room warm in winter or for the lovely racket of birds in the backyard. Naming and praying about the things we are aware of allows them to recede from the center of consciousness. After you have dealt with the things your body brings to your awareness, Deal with the things your ever-turning mind brings there. Tasks to do, tests to study for, anxieties to manage, problems to process, people and situations you are worried about or troubled by. Do not try to avoid these thoughts or suppress these anxieties. Instead, name them directly and let yourself feel all the emotions they raise in you. All of them are safe to bring before God. 
Now ask and listen to hear what, if anything, you can and should do about those things and resolve to do it. Write a letter. Make a call. Stay in intentional prayer for someone. Bring a meal. Offer an apology. Visit and listen. Send money. Offer practical help with a problem. Whatever it is, listen and be ready to say yes to these promptings. They are the guidance of the Spirit, and they are the doorway to the next stop, which is having done what you can and ought to do, you can leave all the rest in God's hands. Resign and deliberately lay down the effort to make everything come out right. Do what is your part and leave the rest in God's keeping. Envision yourself handing all the things you cannot fix over to Jesus and leave them there. God will be God. It is enough for you to be a servant. Finally, you are ready to come to the very center of prayer where you pour out your own deepest heart to God. Speak here your words of gratitude, of repentance, of thanksgiving, and joy. Here reclaim your identity as the beloved of God who came in himself in the flesh to rescue you and promises never to leave you alone. Place yourself and all the activities of your life into this framework that you ask God in trust for the resources you need to turn away from everything that binds and burdens you, from every captivity that turns you aside, from living in God's presence and rejoicing to do God's will. Ask God for the gifts you need to be who and what God calls you to be and give thanks, for God is faithful and will do it.
say thank you and go in peace.